morning, Victory City. So grateful for you to join back with us this week. Um, I just pray um, that the worship was a great experience for you. We're just excited to be able to jump back into the Word of God this week. Um, I pray that you enjoyed um, all that was Resurrection Sunday last week. I also pray that you had a wonderful time in our Monday Manor um, Bible study conversation. Also, our middle school and high schoolers had a great time this past Wednesday as well. Now, we are actually jumping back in this week to the book of Acts. I know it's been quite a while since we were in Acts. We took a bit of a break to walk and lead up to the resurrection of Jesus. But we're actually going to jump back in the book of Acts. And we're just picking right back up where we left off in Acts chapter 11. So let me give you a little reminder of what's been going on in Acts. So we last left off, the last sermon I actually preached from Acts was the impartial God. And if you don't remember in that sermon, Peter has this vision. God shows Peter this vision where um, these animals and things that are unclean to the Jewish faith are coming down. And the Lord speaks to him and says, don't call what I've called clean, um, unclean or, or, or common. And so he is showing to Peter that God does not show partiality, not just in food, obviously. The greater picture here is that God does not show partiality in who he saves. He is the God of both the Greek, the Gentile, as well as the Jew. And so if you remember that this is a constant struggle in the life and in the ministry of Peter, understanding that God is impartial and understanding and accepting the place of the Gentiles in their relationship with God. Now, for us, and I always try to warn us of this because hindsight is always twenty twenty. It is very easy for us to go back and look at the things that happen with Peter, the things that Peter does and think, you know, Peter is, is, is in great error and look at him with a judgmental eye. But we do need to be cautious that we use the scriptures here, not as a means to judge Peter, but to give us insight on ourselves and potentially our own sinful condition. Now, it is very easy to think that Peter is um, just, you know, racially biased or um, prejudiced. And that's not necessarily wrong, but I do think to only look at Peter with a judgmental eye may also cause us to lose true perspective on our own prejudices and biases. Now, I want to be clear, this message is not some liberal hidden agenda, but even the greatest champions of equality and justice are riddled, incredibly riddled with bias. So we have to uproot the things that we feel should apply to certain people and certain people groups and not to others. Certainly this was Peter's issue, but it wasn't just his issue. It was the issue of all of those who found themselves in the Jewish faith. More importantly, though, this is our issue as well. Now, I want to be clear that when we come to Christ, any hate that we have towards someone is rooted not in our feelings of just ourselves, of, of them rather, but is rooted in our feelings of ourselves. Any hate that we have towards anyone when we come to Christ should be eradicated. That doesn't mean we don't have underlying biases and prejudices, sure, that need to be slowly, gently washed away in the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. But we have to understand that when we look at this, 
It is not the hate that we have is not just towards someone because of our feelings of that people group. It's the byproduct of that. But the truth is that the hate that we feel is rooted in how much we view ourselves, how highly we think of ourselves, the way that we we prefer ourselves and our opinions and the way that we think and the way that we speak over others. We're going to look today at how the Jewish believers responded to the news of the salvation of Cornelius and other Gentiles and why this has massive ramifications for us in our walk with Christ, even today as we wrestle with our own prejudices and biases. We're going to go back to, as I mentioned, Acts chapter 11. We're going to go to verse 1 through 3, Acts 11, 1 through 3. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, as the news here has passed back to the Jewish men in Jerusalem, that there were Gentiles who were also being converted. Not only are they are they upset, but the Bible makes it clear that their frustration is twofold. On the one hand, they are angry, but on the other hand, they are upset that Peter even dared to have the nerve to not just enter the house of a Gentile, which broke the Jewish law, but that he's also fellowshipping with Gentiles who they saw as outsiders. See, most people may think, wow, you must really have to hate someone to not want them to be saved, to not want to be in fellowship with them. And I'm not saying that that's not a part of it. I think without a doubt, that certainly is a part of it, that you must hate those people or that person. But the strongest feeling is not the hate of that person. It is the the feeling of pride that we feel in ourselves, which leads us to that type of hate. Yes, hate and prejudice are components here, but that hate is produced by one's feeling of self-love. See, the salvation that was offered to and provided for these men is no different than what has been provided for the Gentiles. The secret, though, is that these men know that, but they did feel that the people themselves were different than they were. Perhaps they thought that they themselves were different. Perhaps they felt that they had what was more deserving um, of grace and salvation than anyone else. They believed that we are in the genealogy of, of God. We have come from Abraham. We can trace our genealogy all the way back to an original 12th tribe. We should be in better relationship with God, let alone through the lineage of Abraham comes Jesus, who we now believe in. So we should take precedence. Not only should we take precedence, we believe that Jesus Christ came for us. If you remember last week in that scripture in Luke, what does the disciples say when Jesus, whom he doesn't recognize, appeals to him? He says, we thought that he came to be the king of Jerusalem. They thought that Jesus was coming to reign back over them as a people. And the, the, the contrary factor to that is that he would demolish any other nation surrounding them, including only those Gentile nations. So there is very much this perspective that still exists in their minds, though they've been converted, 
that we should take precedence over any other people, specifically the Gentiles who they thought were barbarians. Now, you know, Jesus gives us this example, though, in the, par- in the parable of the prodigal son. It's the same context. The parable of the prodigal son, though we've used it to analyze the scripture in many different ways and relationships and things like this, but it really is painting a picture for us of the Jewish nation and the relationship that God has with the Gentiles. So with the prodigal son, give you a reminder just in case you don't you don't know about it. You have these two brothers, the younger brother who is frustrated with um, his life at home, decides that he wants his inheritance. So though his father is not dead, he wants to live as if his father is dead. He wants to receive his inheritance. Once he receives that inheritance, he wants to go out and do his own thing. And, you know, his father complies with him. He gives him his inheritance. He goes out and he does his own thing. Now, while he's doing this, his older brother, once he finally comes back, realizes that I should not have been living like this. We're going to address that older brother in a second. He realized I shouldn't have been living like this. I'm living beneath my privilege. And so he comes back to the father. When he comes back to the father, the father gives him a robe. Not only does he give him a robe, he gives him the best ring that he has. And he presents to him in a celebration a fatted cow. Now, when this happens, you would think the older brother who is happy to see his younger brother would have been excited that his brother was back. No, he isn't. He's incredibly disturbed by the fact that his brother has returned. Not just that his brother has come back, not even just that his father has given him a ring, but he mentions, you gave him a fatted calf. He's been out there with the prostitutes. Now, it's interesting to note that in the parable, it never mentions him actually being with prostitutes until the other brother says that he was with prostitutes. So I think that is just a little glimpse into the heart of the older brother. He's saying, I don't know that he was with prostitutes, but I know what I would have been doing if I had taken my inheritance. I would have been out there with the prostitutes. I would have gone out there and I would have been gallivanting. So there is a, a bit of him that is living vicariously right through what his brother is doing. But he's also frustrated because He feels like when his brother comes back, who had exiled himself from the family, right, who had said, I want to live as if my father is dead. When he comes back, they have the same status. And that is the issue that the brother has. I stayed in this house, yet he withdrew himself from you. Never mind you that clearly the older brother had withdrawn himself from the father, from the family, emotionally and spiritually, though he remained physically. His frustration is, is that the one who should have been exiled, who should have been castigated, has now been brought into the same status that I have, which is a son of the father. He felt like because of his faithfulness, because he was older and because he stayed, he should have had a position that was greater than that of the younger brother, but see, what Jesus is showing us is that that isn't how salvation works. That's why Jesus gives us that parable of the workers. He says there are workers. This is, again, a hint to the Jews who would have rejected the Gentiles. He says there are these workers who have worked a wage, and there are some who work eight hours, 
some who work five, some who work one, and they get the same wage. Because what he is showing them is that God does not prefer any people group. He does not prefer the people who have been saved longer. None of that. It is not based on works. It is not based on your ethnicity. It's not based on culture. The Bible says that it is based on him who calls. He who calls us qualifies us. He justifies us. So it's not based on our works. It is not based, as the Bible says, on our human exertion. It is based solely on God who calls, the God who saved us, who preordained us to good works in salvation before the foundation of the world does not look at us and separate us based on creed, color, ethnicity, but he sees once we have been redeemed, one color, and that is the red blood of Jesus Christ, which has redeemed all of us. That is the beautiful picture of the gospel. And so he views the fact that they have the same status as a means, really as a means to almost invalidate the status that he has. Because all he's thinking about is how he now looks in the place of this. And to be honest, that insecurity that he feels is not a result. Let's be clear of low self-esteem, that insecurity that he feels when that that younger brother is given the same status that he has. That insecurity that he feels is a result of the pride that he feels about himself. See, we do do this thing, right, where we think that insecurity and self-esteem are are completely intangent and balanced with one another. But you can absolutely be insecure and absolutely only think of yourself. That is what pride is. That is what pride does. If I'm in a situation that has nothing to do with me, but I think it is all about me and pointing out my insecurities, then you're thinking about yourself far too much. And just so we're clear, that is what leads to all hate. All hate is rooted in one's pride in oneself and thinking far too much of oneself and thinking far greater of oneself than we all to. Now, when we talk about this, it's the source, it is the root of all hate. This is not simply just a racial or an ethnic hate, but it is the sort of the source of all hate, all prejudice. The prejudice that we feel, that we first feel, the first prejudice that we feel in our hearts is not even against anyone. The first prejudice that we feel in our heart is that we are prejudiced toward our own selves. We prefer ourselves. We take our side in everything. That's why Paul says, if I'm left alone to judge my life, I'll never find anything that I'm actually guilty of. The person who hates another race and feels pride towards their own doesn't just love that race. So they don't just look at that race and think, man, I love this race. They love the race because they are a part of it. So the source of pride is not specifically just found in that race of people. It is that they belong to that race of people. Therefore, they find pride in it because they are a member of it. So when the Bible tells us to love our neighbors, I talked about presupposition of truth last week. When it talks about us loving our neighbor, the Bible here presupposes one important fact that we already love us. 
Love your neighbor as you love yourself, which means I already am thinking about myself in terms of how I view myself, in terms of what I feel about myself, in terms of love towards myself. We already feel very strongly towards ourselves. The feeling of pride towards oneself and one's deservingness for the favor of God will lead to anger. And frustration when someone else gets what they thought they deserved. That has been, for as long as I can remember, the root of all hate. Now, we can play this little game if we look back all the way through the Bible that we see that these men are not alone. One, they are literally complaining that people have come to faith in Jesus Christ. But there's also this trend right throughout the Bible that we see that there are several people who view themselves in a way that they shouldn't. And it limits not only limits, it hinders what they're able to do for God. When you think about Cain and Abel, Cain is asked to give the first fruits. Abel is asked to give one of his his lambs. Cain looks, sees that the sacrifice of Abel is accepted, and he immediately feels frustration, not just because that sacrifice was accepted, but he was looking at that in terms of himself and how he felt God was honoring Abel more than he was honoring himself. What about when Jonah says that he knew God was a merciful God, therefore he did not want to go to the Ninevites because he knew they would repent and believe. He viewed himself as more deserving of the grace of God than they were, so much so that he was not willing to even go witness to them about the truths of who God was. The Pharisees thought that because they were in the family of God that they had more of a position with God than anybody else. We have seen this all throughout the Bible. The whole of this is that when we prejudice our life, when we prejudice our experience and prefer it, then our hope is in our own goodness. And if we feel that we are more deserving than others, then we automatically see others not only as less deserving, that is one component, but we also see them as inferior And this is a condition of us all. We can never see the sinfulness of ourselves clearly, can we? We can't. In fact, we're actually pretty blind to it. When David commits his sin, as gross as it was, it is Nathan who comes to him and tells him this story about this man who steals from another man and doesn't want to repay it back. And David pronounces judgment on this man because he says that that man should repay and be punished. And Nathan says, don't you see? Don't you see? David, you are the man. David couldn't see it at all. His view of himself, his self-righteousness, his pride had completely blinded him to his own sins. The view of himself was so inflated that he could not see unrighteousness in himself, but he could see it everywhere else. He could see it in the lives of other people, including this man in this story. We have that same condition. Now, Let's wrap this whole thing up. How in the world did we get this out of three verses? Let's wrap this whole thing up by bringing this back to the gospel. Throughout the Bible, there is this theme, right, which says the older sibling, which is preferably a boy, 
gets the favor of the Father, gets the inheritance of the Father. But also all throughout the Bible, we constantly see that God does not pick the one who is favored. He constantly picks the younger. He constantly picks the one who is an outcast, the one, the David, who he picks. He constantly picks the Joseph. He picks the ones that normally wouldn't have been picked. The Jacobs, that's what he does. God breaks the societal standard and says, no, it isn't the one who looks the part. It isn't the one who is the most qualified, but it's a long shot. It is the, 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 the most common of the, of the looking people, the ones who are the most unqualified, and those are the ones that he calls. Because if we think about this in terms of the gospel. If God only called the qualified, then none of us would be saved. If God only called those of us who were worth saving, those of us who deserved, those of us who earned salvation, then there would be none of us who would actually be saved because none of us has earned salvation. The Bible makes it clear, none is righteous, no, not one. None of us has done anything because on our best day, as I've mentioned many times, our righteousness, though good to in our eyes, is as filthy rags. But the beauty of the nature of the gospel is that God makes no requirement of us. There is no salvation prerequisite to make us look more acceptable. We have all equally failed to meet God's standard. And the only hope that any of us has at righteousness will be in the one who broke who bore our sins proudly on the cross, the one who took what we actually deserve. Now, I want to bring us back to another point. The source of our frustration oftentimes is that we feel like we are not getting what we deserve. Somebody else has gotten what we deserve. But the fact of the matter is, is that we actually shouldn't want to get what we deserve. Because the reality is, is that what we deserve is damnation in hell and eternal separation from God. So if God chooses to serve or favor or bless somebody else other than me, I'm grateful if I know the nature of my salvation that he ultimately has not given me what I deserve, which is to be eternally separated from him. So if somebody gets something that I think I deserve, I have to remember that Jesus also got what he didn't deserve. And that was my punishment on the cross. So who am I to feel any sense of pride? Because without Jesus Christ dying in my place, I have no hope of righteousness, have no hope of salvation. So to ever have an inflated view of ourselves is not just a denial to those around us. More importantly, it is a denial of the gospel itself. And that's the most damning thing we can do. To call ourselves believers, to call ourselves Christians, the way that we look at each other, the way that we treat each other, the way that we talk to one another, not only denies that person they were made in the image of God like we were, but it denies that the gospel is as applicable to their life as it is ours. Listen, 
the beautiful thing about the gospel is the same thing that condemns people who don't believe. There's nothing you can do. There's no work. There's no box that you can check. There's no list that you can go by. Salvation is the full work of Jesus Christ. And what we learn is that he doesn't prefer anybody over anybody else. He saves who he will, when he wants, and he already paid the cost for us all. So yes, we have all equally failed. And for those of us who are redeemed, we have all had our sins equally atoned for. That is why he is the equal opportunity God. Because in the same way that we've all fallen, he has given us the same means to salvation. And it is through Jesus Christ and not ourselves. And that is our only hope. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. You are an equal opportunity, God. You have given us equal opportunity for salvation through Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean all of us will come to faith. You have preordained and, and predetermined who is saved, God. But we all can hear and respond to the gospel. And Lord, we just pray that you will take anything out of us that would feel any sort of self-pride and and um, an inflated view of ourselves and that you will bring us humility, God, knowing that on the cross is where we deserve to be, yet Jesus hangs. So, God, we thank you that you have given us balance, you have given us truth, you have given us wisdom in the word of God, but it means nothing if we're not walking in it. So, God, we just pray that you give us the grace, that you will give us the mercy, that you give us the wisdom, the insight to actually walk in this truth, to be convicted and changed and sanctified by the truth of what you have done through your son, Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So I pray that that sermon has been a particular blessing. Listen, this is going to be a constant struggle for all of us. We all wrestle with, I know probably more than anybody, our sense of pride, our sense of who we are, and we lose perspective. But I think as long as we keep our eyes on Jesus Christ on the cross and remember, you know what? Anytime I feel pride, I know I belong there. And I'm not. And so anything that would make me feel better about myself than anybody else means that I'm probably taking my eyes off of the cross and I'm probably losing perspective of the gospel. So if you're watching this today and you say, I don't know anything about the gospel, I would love to know something about the gospel, please reach out to us, um, email us at info at ourvictorycity.org. We'd love to talk to you more about that. If you're also watching this and you think, I have questions, well, do I have something for you? So, again, tomorrow at 7 p.m., we're going to join on our Zoom, also on our Facebook live stream. And any questions you have regarding this sermon and concerns, anything that you can think of, anywhere your mind has gone or has been triggered and you want to talk about it, we're going to jump on that Zoom again and that Facebook Live tomorrow at 7 p.m. We're going to be on there. We're going to discuss it. We're going to go through anything that you could be thinking about. We're going to just have a conversation with one another. And my prayer is that that conversation is going to be just a tremendous blessing to you. So if you want to jump on that, um, just let us know that you want to be in that email list. We will add you to that list and get that link sent out to you. I also remember that our middle school and high school Bible study happens at 6.30, also in Zoom. We'll send that link out as well. We thank you for joining in. As it is always, it's time for us to transition to our time of giving. You know all the ways to give. You can give through our Cash App, Victory City. You can give through our Text to Give, 205-415-2662. You can also give by going to the website, made a few adjustments to it, clicking that clearly stated Donate button and giving that way. So. 
thank you, thank you, thank you again for joining in with us this week. We're so grateful that you value this ministry, this church. Um, even though we have to meet like this, that you still show up every week. We're just so grateful for you. As it is every week, go in peace.